Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and made possible by the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. Once a month, we'll spotlight the many efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Here's the host of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, Eric Pfeiffer. Welcome into the Hat Soil Health Podcast, the specialty crops edition. Today we're going to discuss the need for pollinators for many of your specialty crops like watermelons and pumpkins and how insecticides and fungicides can be harmful to those pollinators and other beneficial insects. And I'm sure we're going to touch on many other things as well. And we've got a great crew of folks to talk about it. We have Elizabeth Long here, assistant professor in the Department of Entomology at Purdue. Laura Ingwell, also an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology at Purdue. And I've got Dennis Nowoski here, superintendent, Southwest Purdue Ag Center. Thank you all for joining us. And Elizabeth, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself for the folks. Okay. Um, well, as you all know, my name is Elizabeth. Um, I joined Purdue um, August of 2019 as uh, a junior faculty member. Um, my focal area um, is integrated pest management of um, insect communities in specialty crops or horticultural crops. Um, just as a note, I also did my postdoc here at Purdue um, from 2013 to 2016, and that's when I did a lot of the work that um, we'll be talking about today. Great. Glad to have you along. Laura, what about you? Uh, I am in the same department as Elizabeth. Um, I also started as a junior faculty in August of 2019, but I also did my postdoc prior to that in the same department. So I've been with Purdue since 2015. Um, and a lot of my research focuses on controlled environments, so high tunnels, greenhouses, um, pest management and pollinator management, but I've also been involved as a postdoc first and now as a faculty on this project working with our melon growers in Indiana trying to understand pesticides and pollinators. And we're going to be talking uh, quite a bit about some of that research coming up here. Uh, Dennis, what about you? Introduce yourself for the folks. Yeah, I'm Dennis Nowoski. Uh, I've been with Purdue University since 1994. Uh, been superintendent since 2008. Uh, grew up on a melon farm in, in southern Knox County and have basically grown melons my entire life. So uh, used to farm some on the side by myself or on my own, but uh, now basically focused full time on uh, research here, conducting the research, helping the, uh, the uh, primary investigators uh, and the researchers conduct the research here at the Southwest Purdue Ag Center. We, this year, we've uh, got about 70 research projects that are not all specialty crop, but that really is our main focus here at the Southwest Purdue Ag Center is the uh, watermelon uh, and cantaloupe pumpkin production. I mean, we're in the heart of melon country in Indiana, so that's what we focus on here. Well, Dennis, we're very glad to have you along. We can get some uh... Some boots on the ground there to talk through some of this stuff. So, Laura, I want to start with you. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of this whole thing. Uh, we all know that, that pollinators are, are critical for, for these things, watermelons, pumpkins, cucumbers. But we hear so much about neon, uh, neonics and how they can hurt pollinators. First off, explain what are neonics and what's the problem with them? Okay. 
Um, so neonicotinoids, which is the long name, um, is a class of insecticides. So we usually group insecticides by their class or mode of action in the way that they work to kill an insect. So they're a group of insecticides that act on the nervous system of the insect. Um, and they can lead to hyper-excitement in the insect or make them really slow and lethargic and paralyze them, but ultimately um, are really effective at killing insects. And the reason why they've become so popular and widely used in agriculture is because you can use them with very small doses. So you're not putting a lot of chemical out in the environment like per application because that chemical is really efficient at killing insects. So that's the benefit. <laughs> and what's the problem? Um, the problem is that they are really good at killing insects. So um, that's not limited to only pests that we're targeting, but they work on all insects. So that includes beneficial insects, such as pollinators that we're talking about today, but also natural enemies um, or some insects that are of conservation concern. Um, and we use them so widely in so many different crops that they've really become ubiquitous in the environment. Now, I understand you've been working on a project specifically about how to manage cucumber beetles in watermelons in Indiana for several years. And a lot of times those insects are controlled with neonics. So what did you look at in the project? Talk through some of that, uh, that research. Um, so we focused our research on cucurbit crops. And this was really a regional collaboration. So we worked in three different cropping systems across three different states in the Midwest. In Indiana, we focused on watermelon production. In Ohio, we looked at pumpkins. And in Michigan, we worked on pickling cucumbers, which are a pretty specific kind of cucumber. Um, but all of these crops rely on pollination, so transfer of pollen from male to female flowers. And they have a pretty common suite of insect pests that are a problem. The number one that growers are trying to concern is the striped cucumber beetle. Um, and so we use seed treatments, which is putting the chemical on the seed before you plant it, as well as foliar sprays. So spraying on the leaf tissue later in the season to target this insect pest. So that's the pest that we started with. The reason being also that we, they're pretty easy to find in the field. They're a fairly large beetle. Um, we have some idea of an economic threshold. So how many beetles we can tolerate in those crops before we need to do some sort of chemical intervention to control them. Um, so it was a good starting system for us to understand these dynamics of how could we potentially reduce the amount of insecticides we're using and what those impacts might be on pollinator communities. Now, Dennis, I assume that perhaps you've had some of those down there at the fields at the Southwest Purdue Ag Center? Uh, yes, we have. We're not immune to them. Uh, <laughs> they, they gather in our fields as well. Um, so we scout for them and try to manage them uh, as we can. We, we basically do our IPM, Integrated Pest Management, uh, we try to wait for the thresholds before we make any applications, and especially in this project, working with uh, Laura, uh, it was uh, exactly what we did. So some fields we sprayed. We had to spray when we reached the threshold, and then other fields we never did reach a threshold throughout the year. So there's been certain seasons where we haven't had to make 
uh, insecticide application to control this uh, pest in watermelons. Yeah. Um, so if I could just elaborate, I guess, on the experimental design a little bit. So if we look at the conventional methods for um, growing these crops, it often includes a neonic seed treatment um, or we apply that. So in seed treatments for pickling cucumbers and pumpkins, because that, those are crops where we direct seed them in the field. In crops like cantaloupe and watermelon, where we're starting the transplants in the greenhouse and then moving young plants into the field, in that situation, we apply a soil drench of this neonic insecticide. And the reason that they work so well is because they're systemic. So the plant takes up that chemical and moves it throughout all of the tissues in the plant. So it usually offers some fairly long-term protection and it moves with the plant tissue as that plant grows. Um, so in our experimental design, we worked at five of the Purdue Ag Centers, which was um, quite the undertaking. Um, and we had two sites at each of those uh, farms where we were manipulating what those chemical inputs looked like. And so in one situation, it was the conventional using um, neonics at the time of transplant. And in the other situation, we left that neonic out and we waited and we scouted beetles until the beetles reached this damaging threshold, which we have determined to be five beetles per plant in watermelon. And at that time we would do a reactive spray. And so when we were looking at our foliar sprays, a lot of growers commonly follow up those neonic applications at planting with um, an application of a pyrethroid insecticide, which is a different group of insecticides, but also very general in its mode of action um, and can be detrimental to pollinators, natural enemies, and the pest. Um, so in those systems where we were scouting, we would only apply that pyrethroid through a foliar application when the beetles reached threshold. In the conventional systems, we applied that chemical every two weeks, which is pretty standard, along with um, a fungicide that we're applying to control foliar um, fungal diseases in the crop. So what did you notice uh, between the two? Uh, what was the, the end result, I guess, and, and what did it do for yield of these crops? So it's something that we've been doing for, this will be the fifth year. So we have a little bit of variation from year to year um, with environmental conditions. Um, but big picture, what we found, which Dennis alluded to, was that in these fields where we were scouting, we very rarely ever reached that damaging threshold. So we think that in watermelon, you could go without foliar insecticide applications um, targeting cucumber beetles in most situations. There was one time at one farm in each year where that threshold was met and then we made one pesticide application to target cucumber beetles and then they stayed below threshold for the remainder of the season. So that was really exciting. We also saw as you translate this into pollinator community and crop yield, huge differences in the pollinator communities between those fields that we were spraying every two weeks and applied the neonic compared to um, what we called our IPM or scouting fields. Um, we saw a reduction in the diversity of bees as well as just the sheer amount, almost um, three to four fold less bees in those conventional plots as compared to IPM. 
And what that translates to is a yield factor, right? The more pollinators you have in the system, the more pollination events that are happening, which would lead to the highest yield potential. There are other things in the field, right, that can affect yield, but as the yield potential from pollination is what pollinators are contributing. And what we found was either no difference in yield or in some situations and in really good years, we saw higher, significantly higher yields of watermelon in our IPM plots um, compared to those that had the conventional spray. Um, but one thing that we haven't touched on and I wanted Elizabeth to be able to talk about the importance of is sort of the context in which this research happened. So we were working on research plots of watermelon, so just a half an acre size plot. But we had that nested within corn, which is typical of the Indiana landscape. And in our conventional production watermelon fields, that corn was treated with the uh, common seed treatment combinations that happens in corn production in Indiana. And in our IPM plots, that corn was grown without any neonics on that seed treatment. And um, Elizabeth would do a much better job of talking about sort of the landscape level impacts of that corn and why we used corn as sort of our habitat in which this research was being conducted. Yeah, so I guess um, to follow up on that then, I guess the vast majority um, of corn and soybeans, that's what we have here in Indiana. Um, they're dominating row crops by acreage for sure. And um, these are, as Laura mentioned, treated with um, a seed treatment, which is basically just a liquid formulation of insecticide and fungicide that are applied directly to the seed. You put that seed in the ground and, um, you know, as they germinate, in theory, they're absorbing those, those chemicals and using them to protect themselves um, or providing that protection against insects that may feed on them. And we found in, in our work looking at um, these neonic seed treatments in field crop settings that you know, it's just a tremendous amount of um, insecticide on the seed. And because they're so um, water soluble, that which is one of the reasons they're so great because the plants take them up and they, they function systemically like Laura mentioned, um, this creates a scenario where they can move or drift away from the seed in ways that um, maybe weren't initially expected when we thought about these seed treatments. So um, having these, some of these watermelon um, plots in nested within um, a field that's, you know, historically and, and probably always been planted with these neonicotinoid um, treated corn seeds. You know, there's just this environment, a background noise there, if you will, of, of these pesticides in the soil. And I guess there's a, there's a possibility and certainly literature has demonstrated that, or research has demonstrated that other kind of what we might think of as non-target plants, whether it's a different crop or weedy plants um, that may be growing there could also be absorbing some of those um, insecticides, you know, as they're growing. So maybe um, if I'm understanding or making the connection back with Laura, there, there could be the possibility that that kind of background um, level of these neonicotinoid residues, which are water soluble in the same location as these watermelon um, plots, you know, maybe there could be some of that um, insecticide moving and, and acting in the watermelons um, in a way that we, that might not have been expected, but could be contributing to reductions in insect pressure on the pest side, but also potentially reductions in the abundance or diversity of pollinators too. Yeah. And when we're, 
what we learned in this research working across all of these dis different systems was really understanding the landscape scale at which these pollinators are foraging, right? So a lot of times we're taking an approach specific to a crop because that's the commodity we work with. Um, so when we talk about pollinator health in specialty crops, we're thinking about what are the ways in which we manage our specialty crops to maximize pollinator health. But here we're really taking this full system approach and we're manipulating not only that specialty crop, but also the inputs in the habitat surrounding that. And you know what we found, and is not really that surprising, is that bees of all sorts, we specifically tracked managed honeybees and bumblebees, but then did observations on the native bees. They're foraging on all different plant sources. So they're foraging on corn, they're foraging on the surrounding landscape, weeds in the fields, trees, um, as well as that watermelon. But um, the work where we've really quantified the pollen that the honeybees are bringing in is in the pickling cucumber system. And cucumber pollen, which is the crop that we're trying to manage these pollinators in, is less than 1% of the diet of the honeybees that we're putting in that system. So what's really important there to recognize if you want healthy honeybees to pollinate cucumbers, you need to look outside of those cucumber fields and see where that exposure is coming from and what can we manage differently to reduce those risks to pollinators. And in that system, we found that the majority of what they're foraging on, I mean, this is landscape dependent. So where they were in Michigan was goldenrods, sumac, which are two non-managed, but pretty dominant uh, plants in agricultural settings and corn. A lot of their forage resources were coming from corn. So if you're treating that corn with a similar pesticide, they're, they're getting exposure through that route as well. It really surprised me, Laura, as a grower, was the number, and, and Elizabeth, the number of other insects that we, the percentage of pollination we were getting from those rather than just the honeybee and the bumblebee. Because I guess I never put it all together over the years. It's not just the honeybees we need to be trying to protect too. It was some of the other beneficial insects that were out there that are also pollinating as well that we're, we're eliminating with some of these uh, insecticide applications as well. Yeah, and you know, that's a question we get a lot from growers is how, what is the best pollinator in my crop and how should I manage them? And so we automatically think to honeybees. But in the work that we do, honeybees contribute to about a quarter of total floral visits or pollination in these crops, in watermelon in particular, sorry. Um, bumblebees is another one that growers have been adopting because they are commercially available. Um, they're different than honeybees, and so the impacts of insecticides are different because they're an annual bee, which means that the hive really only lasts for six to eight weeks. And then in the way that we use them in a commercial sense, they're essentially disposable. We just throw them away. But if you use that as a proxy for native bumblebees, we can look at how the exposure um, in our crops is imp influencing new queen production. But bumblebees are only about 5% of pollination. So together, that's 30%. The other 70% is coming from native bees in these systems, largely sweat bees, um, but also surfid flies, which are not bees, but they contribute to at least 10% of pollination. Um, one other native bee in particular, the two-spotted longhorn bee, 
um, and then a little bit smattering in there of some others. But yeah, we're seeing that we can't completely rely on honeybees. We need to think about those native communities because they're contributing a lot more in these systems. You're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast presented by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative of Indiana. You can find more about their programs and events at ccsin.org. I'm joined by Elizabeth Long and Laura Ingwell, both assistant professors in Purdue's Department of Entomology, and Dennis Nowoski, superintendent of the Southwest Purdue Ag Center. And Elizabeth, let's change gears a little bit here and talk about fungicides. Uh, watermelons, pumpkins, they usually get frequent sprays of fungicides. Do they hurt bees and other beneficial insects? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the answer is yes, although I think we're still learning um, more and more. Certainly from my experience, I've spent more time um, thinking about insecticides being in, in an entomology department. Um, but I can say with confidence that there's certainly been growing evidence um, but ten, I guess possibly more on the bumblebee side, um, where they've actually identified certain fungicides um, as being worse uh, for those bees. And so um, I, I took a look through the spray guide here this morning, <laughs> and the one um, fungicide that I see kind of coming to the top um, that is used in, in all cucurbits is chlorothalonil. Um, and some of the trade names of these products are things like Bravo or Echo, um, Initiate, you know, all um, I think kind of key fungicides in the backbone of a spray program to protect these cucurbits against bacterial diseases, things like scab, um, maybe some rots. And so there's been some um, relatively new research um, that shows that these bumblebees are especially susceptible to these fungicides. And, and it's not just that fungicide alone, but also that the fungicide stresses the bumblebees and and certainly honeybees too, and makes them more susceptible to other stressors that they're experiencing in the environment. So just like you or I, you know, you're tired, your diet, it maybe isn't great. And then you're exposed to something in this case, let's say a fungicide in the system where you're living, um, then you're just more likely to succumb um, to other things. And so this interaction between the, the fungicides, um, I'm just giving the example of chlorothalonil because that's one I know with, that I know is used in cucurbis, um, and how it has this negative interaction with um, pathogens that they commonly experience and then, you know, really being harmful. On the honeybee side, um, we know that there's some, um, well, we, I guess we generally know fungicides aren't great, but I don't know, at least to my knowledge right now, if, um, if there are any specific fungicides that have been demonstrated to be particularly harmful to honeybees. Now, we know tank mixing fungicides and insecticides is often done for efficiency, is it better to spray them separately together as far as bee safety goes, Elizabeth? Yeah, that's that's a tough question. I mean, um, and I'm, I'm curious to have Dennis weigh in here because I I imagine going out and spraying a huge field, it's so much more convenient um, and economical to mix these products and apply them at the same time. Um, I'm assuming that they're, you know, labeled that way and you can do it safely. I think um, if I had to answer that question with my gut, I don't think it's really the issue of tank mixing that makes it more dangerous for bees. It's really an issue of um, if those products are out there at the same time, the likelihood that that pollinators um, like the bumblebees and honeybees being exposed or contacting um, two products at the same time just increases, you know, potential harm. So um, this is what we would call like a synergy. Um, so we're basically, if you think about two products being more toxic when they're contacted together than when they're um, contacted one after another. 
And so we, it's well known that these synergies exist between fungicides and insecticides, certainly the neonicotinoids, um, acetamiprid and thymethoxin, which are commonly used in cucurbit crops. Um, but in terms of a specific um, synergy between those neonics and a fungicide that would be used in, in cucurbits, that has not, to my knowledge, been documented at this time. But I guess in the big picture, again, thinking about what these bees are doing all day long, going out foraging, visiting lots of flowers, the more pesticides they contact, um, the more likely it is to be harmful, of course, and then the more likely they are to be experiencing these synergies between two, two chemicals that are particularly um, harmful or extra stressful on the bee than, than if you know, they experienced one one day and then you know, maybe another a week later. Yeah, tank mixing is very common uh, out here. Uh, we, uh, it's basically, I mean, it's it's a time issue. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have to make a, a fungicide application, a lot of times, uh, in time you get over your it, the amount of acreage that you're spraying, and then if in a day later you have to tank mix and go back in uh, with an insecticide. Although it, I mean, I, I feel it's very important to basically scout your fields to make sure that you even have the insects or the disease that you're, you know, spraying. You just a lot of, a lot of fungicides have to be put on as a preventative measure. You can't wait till you get the disease before you apply them. So you have to put them on as a preventative measure to keep the disease out. Uh, insecticides on the other hand, I think can be kind of held off and make sure that you have the, the insect pressure uh, that you meet these thresholds before you even uh, put the insecticide in with the fungicide. But it, it is all about uh, being uh, productive with your, your best time management, I guess, with a lot of them. And that's why they get thrown in a lot of times because they don't want to go back a day later and have to make an insecticide application. It's, it's, and sad to say, a lot of times the insecticides just get thrown in and a lot of times they're really not needed. But you know, that's why, I, again, it's, I, I just feel it's so important to scout your fields. A lot of guys scout their own fields. Some of them even use crop consultants that come in and, and scout their fields. Uh, we do scouting here. Of course, in your, in your vegetables and your, your uh, specialty crops, your, I mean, they're high dollar crops, so you really want to manage them well. So you're out in them a lot. Uh, that's how we do a lot of our managing, and I'm fortunate enough here to, to have the specialist uh, that uh, kind of assist us when they're in here scouting their plots as well. So that's beneficial to me, but, you know, the growers don't really necessarily have that. Uh, so a lot of times, like I said, they will use crop consultants or they'll scout their own fields, but it convenience is what the tank mixes is all about, and sometimes, I guess, I, I mean, I I hate to see insecticides getting thrown in when they're not really needed, but I know sometimes that does happen. That's one of the biggest challenges I think that we face as a researcher is understanding those economic efficiencies for growers. And, you know, we can do all the research we want, but if we can't convince them that it's worth their time to implement it, um, that's, that's the difficult challenge. So what Dennis is talking about in particular is this idea of tank mixing and cucurbits those fungicides with um, oftentimes a pyrethroid, like Warrior, for example, because it's sort of an insurance policy and a safety net. If you're out there and it takes hours or two days to cover all your fields and you decide to leave that out, which is a few cents per acre, and 
and that insect comes out, now you have to spend all that time spraying again. Um, but I would say that that's, you know, one of the great things that our research is showing and has shown in, in this system in particular is that by leaving those out, you're going to see benefits to the communities in those fields. And one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is what we call secondary pest outbreaks. So in this situation, we're targeting the striped cucumber beetle because it's the most devastating and maybe gets to the crop earlier, but there are a lot of other pests in these crops, such as aphids and spider mites, which can become a problem. Um, and what we are beginning to see in this um, repeated work from year to year is that in those fields where you're doing the pyrethroid application every 14 days, we're finding a lot higher occurrence of aphids and spider mites um, to the point where we're actually having to do additional chemical management to reduce those populations. But in our IPM fields where in most years there's absolutely no insecticide application, those secondary pests aren't becoming a problem. And we can hypothesize that that's because we're leaving those natural enemy communities intact in and they're helping with suppressing those populations as well. But it could also be for other factors like competition between different herbivores or other things. Um, but we do know that we are encountering them less in our IPM plots. And so we had one student who actually broke down the economics and developed a plan for scouting and what that would actually look like and what that would take for a farmer um, and was able to come up with some recommendations. So you would have to, to detect the five cucumber beetles um, per plant in your field. You would have to scout on average eight plants, which can take about 20 minutes. Um, and so if you break that down into a average 10 hours a week, of a scout for 12 weeks, that's about $40 in their salary to do the scouting throughout the season. Um, whereas the average cost of a pesticide treatment is about $14 per acre. Um, so really it would only cost you, I think if it comes down to about $250 for the insecticide versus $40 for a scout for the whole season. So makes economically, makes it makes sense, sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> it does. So there's limitations there. You have to have a scout or a field employee who's willing to learn how to do cucumber beetles. But like I said, there's not a lot out there that looks like them and they're pretty apparent on the plant. So they're a fairly easy insect to scout. Um, so even the grower could do that when he's out checking the crop. It's it's not. Um, it's not too cumbersome and it really economically makes a lot of sense to save, you know, $250 per pyrethroid application on the average size watermelon field, which that, you know, can look very different from farm to farm. But if you think about doing that every two weeks for the growing season, that's a lot of money. As our time winds down here on the Hat Soil Health podcast, I just want to go around again. We spent much of the podcast talking about neonics and, and the, the effects that they have on pollinators. So, Laura, I'll, I'll start with you, and we'll just go around the horn here. What else can specialty crop growers do to reduce the use of neonics in agriculture? I think that I would, I would move beyond specialty crops. So I would say specialty crop growers can implement scouting 
and um, conservative use of insecticides in crops where they're really needed and at times when crops are most vulnerable. But even more so is looking outside of their specialty crops and thinking about insecticide use on the landscape when we're talking about pollinators. So maybe when they're rotating with field corn or soybeans, they can leave that seed treatment off or they can um, talk to their neighbors where their bees are foraging in their fields as well about their insecticide use. Because I think that at this point, there is ample evidence to show that in corn and soybean, those neonic applications are not beneficial and doing a lot more environmental harm. Elizabeth, how about you? I think I would echo a lot of what Laura said. Um, you know, I think that looking at, well, folks who are planting corn and soybean, I mean, because they have so much acreage and there's so much product on those seeds, on the treated seeds, that is, um, that, you know, in some ways, I think if they could push um, to have that option, to have treated or untreated seed, I think could be huge because that effect is definitely, um, those, those seed treatments are really drifting off far beyond those fields, which is one issue, but another issue is that their fields are often huge. So if you're a specialty crop grower in proximity, which in Indiana, is it like possible not to be close to a corn and soybean field? <laughs> um, no. I think that's, you know, that's a push I would would make. Um, if, if they could push for that, that option, that choice, I think would be a game changer. And I guess in terms of what um, a individual grower could do, um, I'll just echo what Dennis and Laura have also said that, you know, be familiar with what is or isn't a pest. Um, go out there, take a look, um, monitor those insects. You know, there's tools out there. Um, depending on what they are. I don't actually know if there's any monitoring traps for uh, cucumber beetle. Maybe I've spoken out of turn, but but certainly being able to scout and know what that threshold is and whenever possible, um, tolerate you know the acceptable amount of damage before you decide to spray because um, that is going to make a huge difference in the beneficial insects. And then that's, you're, you know, you're going to be getting that benefit rather than fighting, <laughs> um, not just your focal pest, which turns out isn't at a level that's damaging, but then all those secondary flare-ups like the aphids and mites like that, that Laura mentioned. Um, I think that would be, that would be my recommendation. And me, I guess growers know their fields better than anyone else. Uh, the fields that they know that they have the issues with, you know, you might use the, if they have to use the neonics in those fields, but don't use it on every acre. Uh, if, you, if you don't have the pressure of that insect that you're trying to get with them, I mean, just basically, you know, try to avoid the seed treatment or at least go with the lower, uh, the lower uh, uh, coating on the, the seed. So, and I mean, it's just, again, it's a matter of knowing your field, scouting, only spray when you need to spray the insecticides. I know a lot of times the growers, I mean, we're in a hurry. Uh, we're, we're out of time. At the end of the day, we just want to get the spray in, get it done. But, you know, it's, it's economically beneficial to you to not throw the $14 an acre spray in if you really don't need it. So I guess that's about all I can say, the best way I could put it. Elizabeth, Laura, Dennis, thank you for joining us here on the Hat Soil Health Podcast. A lot of great information shared today. We certainly appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you. And that concludes this Specialty Crops edition of the Hat Soil Health Podcast, brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative of Indiana. You can find more about their programs and a schedule of events at ccsin.org. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next time on the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a presentation of Hoosier Ag Today, Indiana's Farm Network.